and I always uh, write one word at the top of whether it's my submissions or my opening statement or my closing statement in that case, uh, and it is the word breathe. I like to talk. Sometimes I talk too much, uh, and, and there was nervous energy when I was first starting, and I remember the first feedback that I got uh, from uh, from one of the instructors was, you know, Adam, geez, you just got to learn how to breathe. Like, just breathe, and it'll help you relax, and, and it'll help you to, to organize your thoughts, and it'll help your, your pace of your submissions. And, you know, clearly you, you knew what you were doing and you knew what you were talking about. It wasn't about preparation. It wasn't about substance. It was just about breathe, damn it. Welcome to Of Counsel. I'm your host, Sean Robichaud. Join us as our podcast profiles remarkable legal advocates from all areas of law the professionals of persuasion, the catalysts of social change, defenders of the downtrodden, protectors of social order, and the mercenaries of corporate interests. Those who, with the power of words alone, can shape the laws of nations, define human rights, and preserve or take away the liberty of another human being. Who are these lawyers? What are their secrets? And how do they balance it all? Court is now in session. All rise. Last year, Adam Wagman was named among the most influential lawyers in Canada by Canadian Lawyer Magazine, with his performance in 2017 as the Ontario Trial Lawyers Association President, he fit well among other nominees that included a Supreme Court of Canada judge, law professors, Bay Street moguls, and a human rights commissioner to name only a few. As a certified specialist in civil litigation and partner with Howie Sachs in Toronto, Adam has accomplished some of the largest civil judgments for personal injury in Canada, some of which exceeding millions of dollars. His expertise, wisdom, and remarkable empathy for his clients shines particularly bright in the areas of catastrophic injuries that include brain and spinal cord injuries. Focused and passionate in all areas of his life, Adam is an active member of his community, a loving father, avid cyclist, rock star, literally a rock star, and deeply involved in charitable causes. Join us as Adam takes us through his views on life balance, advocacy, giving back to the community, and some shocking revelations on what it means to be a person injured in the province of Ontario and the limitations you may face if seeking compensation. So Adam, we, we met some time ago, and one of the things that struck me immediately with you is your passion for law. And I see this with a lot of advocates, um, you know, especially people at the top of their game. Everyone is enthusiastic. But for you, in personal injury, that's not something that everyone looks at and think, that's it for me. But it is for you. Why is that? Um, I love people, is, is the bottom line. Uh, and personal injury law is about, first and foremost, people. Uh, to me, I find it easy to be passionate about uh, other human beings. Uh, not that there's anything wrong with any other area of the law. Uh, I can't dig into a box of, of uh, documents. And, uh, you know, that, that doesn't get my juices flowing. Right. Um, I like to see a real human being. I like to know that I am uh, trying to make a difference in someone's life. And, and that's what motivates me every day. And it's why I love what I do. 
that passion seems to have carried on. And I know you, uh, someone with very strong work ethic and um, cares a lot about every case. And I, I want our listeners to understand a little bit, what is the day-to-day of, of what you do? What are your hours and how has that evolved over the years? Because obviously, as you get more experience, you learn how to be more efficient. But what does it look like in the life of a personal injury lawyer for you? Well, I can tell you when I when I first started, it was very much a, you know, six plus days uh, a week for sure. Uh, and the hours were long. Um, I've always been the type of person who, uh, if I was going to do something, I, I really wanted to do it well. Uh, and I wasn't going to settle for doing just enough. Uh when I articled, I articled at a firm called Thompson Rogers, uh, you know, a, a leading uh, a personal injury firm and, and litigation firm. Uh, and I was in master's court probably two, three days a week. That seems average. like a lot for relative to other uh, articles and other lawyers, young lawyers at the time. Uh, it was not abnormal in the small personal injury bar at that time. So I used to have my opponents from whether it was, you know, Dutton Brock or Fireman Reagan at the time. Uh, And it was really just a master's court filled with, you know, personal injury lawyers dealing with uh, undertakings and and refusals and and procedural motions. Uh, And at that time, and I I don't know what it's like now, uh, I haven't been to master's court in a little while, but at that time, uh, the masters did not suffer fools. And if your motion record was bound with the wrong color, uh, they were not going to hear you. Uh, If you were not, you know, if your I's were not dotted and your T's were not crossed, you were going to hear about it. Uh, And so, uh, you know, in addition to knowing everything that you had to know about, not just the motion, but the file, and the law in that area, you had to go over your materials with a fine tooth comb. And so, uh, you know, me and my articling colleagues, I mean, we worked uh, from early in the morning until late at night with no complaints. And and I and I say that not uh, not because people necessarily complain more these days, but we had no expectation otherwise. No one ever told us that articling was going to be, uh, you know, a nine to five job. No one ever told us that law was going to be something where, you know, once we got through law school and we got an articling job that we'd be fine. Uh, We were told uh, the job market's terrible. Uh, You'll be lucky to find an articling job. And when you do, you better work your butt off uh, if you want to succeed. And so we all went in with the same expectation, which is let's work hard and see what happens. And and that's what we did. And, you know, I, I, I would say that I have the same mentality today. My my job duties are are very different. You know, I oversee a a wonderful department here at uh, at Howie Sachs. Uh, I've got a couple of lawyers who work directly with me, a couple of law clerks, and a number of assistants. And uh, you know, I, I love the group that I work with, uh, but I do a lot more uh, overseeing cases. Uh, I do a lot more uh, marketing. Uh, I do a lot more of the, uh, you know, public and volunteer activities, uh, the Ontario Trilors Association. My time mm-hmm. there is coming to an end soon. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, I, but I still get up. I work a long day. I uh, come home. I try and spend some time with, uh, with my kids, mm-hmm. uh, with my wife, uh, do some of the other, you know, outside of work activities that I like to do. And uh, I don't sleep very much. 
and I want to return to that because I know um, that sort of balance and, and your family is very important to you. But just touching on this a little bit more, because a lot of our listeners are young lawyers and articling students who are trying to get a sense of whether they can do this and whether, you know, the hours they're putting in uh, are going to be manageable. And one thing that you just said um, struck me a little bit because I hear it a lot and certainly I feel the same way is you learn uh, a certain work ethic within your article that, that seems to carry on whether you like it or not. And, and what I've seen, a trend, is that a lot of lawyers, uh, the th- that type of work ethic is if you fast forward 20 years, and I don't know if it's an innate ability or something that's imposed upon them that carries on, but... Uh, it seems to me that the the strong work ethic you're describing at Thompson Rogers is still the same work ethic you're applying today. Yeah, absolutely. And and you know I think there's a, a couple of uh, things that are important there. The first is uh, it's easy to work hard when you love what you do and you love the people that you do it with. And the advice that I give, I, I meet with a lot of young lawyers and, and students. I anyone that emails me and says, "Hey, do you have time for coffee?" The answer is always yes. Uh, and my number one piece of advice that I give to people is to find something that they love to do and find people that uh, who they love to do it with. And everything else will essentially work itself out from there. Uh, that's what makes it easy to come to work in the morning. It's what makes it easy to put in the hours uh, because I like what I do and I like the people who I work with. I, I love my partners. I, I love my team. Um, you know, I love the the board of directors, uh, the people that I work with at, at OATLA, at the Trial Lawyers Association. Um, you know, I really, I really like most of the insurance defense lawyers mm-hmm. who I have cases with. Mm-hmm. Um, life is too short uh, and too precious to do something that you really don't want to do. And so for young lawyers out there, you know, my best advice is, and, and you know, just pausing for a second, this is still a job. I mean, we, we still, this is, we all probably have something that uh, if we had $20 million in the bank that we might otherwise be doing, although I'd probably still come in, but maybe a little bit less often. I was going to ask, I don't think for, you would change if you had. Yeah, probably I'd for still... fewer hours maybe, <laughs> but, uh, but no, I, I'd still probably be here. But, you know, that being said, you still have to be passionate about what you do. And you, you can't dread coming into work otherwise, other, either because you don't like the nature of the work or you don't like the people who are there. Uh, and if you can find something you love and people who you love to work with, working hard is, is not an issue. It's not a problem. It doesn't feel like a chore most days anyways. Uh, it's something that I look forward to. Right, and you you hear that a lot. I mean, the people that we've interviewed, and uh, a lot of the 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 best lawyers that I've um, come to know in my career have that same attitude. Is they all love their job, and I think if you ask any of these people or awarded them a lottery, you'd see them in court the next day. You know, they may have a nicer shoes on or something like that, but they're they're still going to do it because they love it. But you know, there's that. But then taking it to the next level, because um, you know, you are someone who is and I mean this literally, one of the most influential um, lawyers in the justice system, and, and I'm re- referencing in particular to um, Canada Lawyers Magazine, where you were ranked that last year. And any lawyer, um, any lawyer in Canada knows how prestigious of an award that is to be awarded um, along lines of chief justices of the Supreme Court of Canada and advocates like Marie Hennon. You're up there. And I wonder, you know, is the passion and and wanting to do something and enjoying 
what you do enough to bring you to that level? What does it take for these young lawyers who say, I want to be the next Ontario Trial Lawyers Association president. I want to be on that list of the top 25. Well, let, let me let me just talk about that award for, for one second. Um, you know, I'm not big on personal accolades, uh, and I'm not trying to... B- be you know falsely modest about it. The, the reality is that that particular award is one that really belongs to the Trialors Association, to the to the board of directors who who worked with me the the year that I was president, uh, to all the members of the organization who worked really hard because it was a really difficult year. And we may talk about that later on in this interview. Yes, though, absolutely. Where where the law society and and unfortunately the media uh, through a really negative media lens was looking at uh, the area of personal injury law. At, uh, advertising at, at contingency fees, at referral fees. Uh, and we had a lot of battles to fight. And to say I didn't fight those battles alone is, is an understatement. I, you know, the, the staff at the Trialors Association, the, the executive, the board were, were unbelievable to work with. And so I believe that I received that award simply uh, because I happened to be the president of the organization who was dealing with all those things at a time when that was happening, you know, very, very publicly and, and uh, unfortunately, very, very loudly. And so, uh, you know, the, the person who uh, I think uh, likes that award the most, of course, is my mother. Uh, <laughs> and you will never, regardless of the fact that I consider it to be a group award, uh, she certainly considers it to be an award for her son. So, uh, you know, that's something we, we, we won't ever take away from her. Right. But, you know, the, the, the interesting thing about Oatla, and uh, one of the things you asked me uh, uh, to take a look at and think about was uh, was failures over the course of my career. We can come right. back and talk about that, but no, let's you know, talk I about think, it now. Yeah, I think this, that goes to where we're we're going with this. So, uh, I ran for the board of Otla, uh, and did, was not successful my first time at. And we're not talking about the presidency. We're just talking about no. the board. I just want to be there. Yeah, as as a young lawyer, I, I had uh, I love doing volunteer work. Uh, I love doing community work. I love. Um, getting involved and and being in the know and being on the forefront of what's happening and surrounding myself with with really good people, strong advocates. Uh, and so I, I had done work for for a number of years with some of the brain injury organizations in uh, in Ontario, and we can talk about that too. But uh, when I when I came to an end, I had done that for about a decade. I, I decided I really wanted to do some work with with Oatla. And uh, I ran for the board, and there was it was down to two positions: uh, me and Judith Hull, who's a, a lawyer, personal injury lawyer in London, fantastic lawyer, great person. Uh, and we agreed that uh, you know whoever won would buy the loser a beer. Uh, and I was the loser, and uh, I kept bugging her for my beer for several years. Uh, and I guess about two, three years later, something like that. Uh, she had actually been elected to be the vice president of the organization. And she came to meet with me, with, with one of the other leaders of the organization, and said, look, you ran a couple of years ago. You weren't successful. Uh, you know, have you given it some thought? And I said, yeah, no, I absolutely have, have given it some thought. I'm, I'm interested in it. I, at the time, uh, I was uh, uh, the managing partner or about to become the managing partner of this firm. Uh, and uh, I, I wasn't sure if the timing was right. And they said, no, we, we think we'd, we'd like to have you. So I said, sure, I'll run again. Now, a lot of people I've seen over my years on the board of Otla, 
a number of fantastic people come out and run for the board and because of the the numbers game there's only a certain number of positions and there's a, a number of just fantastic candidates um you know a number of great people don't get onto the board right well uh, it's discouraging right it, if you absolutely. you you invest everything in it not just your time but your name you go in and you say Here's me. It's a it's a bit of a popularity contest, and you can't help self reflect upon that and think, is it me? And you know, I I think there's a lot of people who, after your first time, I think this is what you're getting to, who just give up. But so how how do you overcome that? With you know, whether it's running for Ola and getting elected again, or whether it's a judge, you know, laying into you over some argument, even though you felt you were right. How do you pick yourself up with failure and do it again with the degree of excellence required? I, I'm. I don't worry about failure uh, uh, too much. I, I don't take it uh, too uh, personally. I feel blessed. I've always felt blessed in in my life. And if something goes wrong, uh, I figure it's just the great ledger, uh, you know, trying to balance itself out the other way because I honestly feel so blessed on the other side of the ledger that it's okay if everything doesn't go right for me uh, once in a while. And the measure of you as a human being Mm -hmm. is not how you act when things are going well. It's how you act when things are not going well. That's, 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 the measure of you as a, as a human, as a, as a professional, as a lawyer, um, it's easy when when things are going well, when the cases are coming in, when things are resolving, or your trials are good, or the other lawyers think your case is great. You know, when you're really tested, is when things aren't going well. And and um, you know, I don't honestly believe that that this was even a, a test. I I tried, I failed. It was time to try again, and so I did. Uh, I, if I had failed again, would it have been harder personally? Sure, of course. Would I have tried again? Probably yes. Or maybe I would have tried a different legal organization. But, you know, one door closes, another door opens. Sure. And so uh, it, this was important to me to get involved in the legal profession. You know, Oatla really was where my heart was as, as a personal injury lawyer, as a trial lawyer. And uh, and that's the direction I wanted to go. And so I was successful the second time around. And uh uh, was uh, became an executive member of the board for several years and and ran to become uh, the vice president because that's the succession plan at Oatla. You, you're vice president for a year, president-elect for a year, and then president for a year. And, uh, you know, I was just lucky enough to time it so that the Toronto Star uh, took an interest in my profession during the year when I was uh, president of the organization. So. Right, and there's a lot to be said about that, and I, I want to get into that. But um, one thing, just before we move on with that, you know, I, I, and maybe even the, the word failure is a bit odd because the way you're describing it seems more just some detours along the road trip rather than failure. But um, there are some moments as a lawyer, I'm sure you appreciate, um, where you really struggle. It's hard to get up in the morning. You have a case that may have been devastating upon your client and their life, and it has a toll. You know, no matter who you ask, no matter how good they are, you're still going to have these ghosts of litigation that can haunt you to a certain degree. And maybe it's not just litigation, there's other reasons as well. So how do you overcome that? What sort of things do you do to uh, make sure you can hit the the reboot? Um, yeah, um, you know, I'm, I'm annoyingly positive. People tell me that <laughs> all the time. Um uh, you know, I, I always uh, say around this firm that, uh, you know, I'm not a problem person. I'm a solution person. So, 
you know, when you come to me with an issue, let's talk about solutions. Let's, let's not focus on the problem. So, you know, I, of course, you know, if you're going to litigate, you're going to lose. Uh, you know, any lawyer who tells you that they've never lost a trial is someone who's been to trial once, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I've had a couple of cases that um, have gone very poorly at trial. The, the first personal injury trial I ever did uh, was, you know, and, and the listeners may, you know, chuckle a little bit. It wasn't funny to the, the person, but uh, as a young guy, I was working at a golf driving range. Uh, and was on the uh, the ball picker machine, you know, out in the field. Well, everyone mm. who golfs knows that right. when you're standing on the range, you what do you aim target. for, right? You, right. Aim, you aim for that guy. Um, apparently, he was told by the boss that the ball picker didn't get all the balls in the corner and he had to get out and pick up balls. And he took a line drive in the testicle. And that right. was the case. Hmm. Uh, I was handed the file... You know, I, in in my in my young lawyer memory, it's the day before, but it was probably two weeks before the trial to say, you know, it, that that question. You know, when you get pulled into a partner's office and they say, "What are you doing uh, at, in two Mondays?" You know, and you know that this is a bad question, but you better say nothing. I'm free. What would you like me to do? <laughs> right. And I get handled a fi- handed a file and, and say, "You're going the to case trial for you." Adam. Right. <laughs> uh, and and I knew why they were handing it to me because they thought it was a loser. And and you know, hey, go cut your teeth on something that we don't. Think think you're going to succeed at anyways. Uh, and so I went and I did the trial and I worked my butt off. And, and there was a real human being who had really been injured. And uh, clearly the jury didn't buy it. And, and they came back and they, you know, first answered the question on liability, that there was no liability. And then, of course, the second question is, despite your answer on liability, you know, what amount of damages do you award? And they said zero. And the judge kind of looked at them and said, you know, zero. But, you know, we heard all about the damage to his testicle and, and the loss of his testicle uh, is did you really find that those damages were worth zero and the, and the foreman of the jury stands up and says but we don't want him to get anything and, really? and you just see that and so they had to go back and they had to f- award an amount that my client wouldn't receive because there was no liability uh, you know and that was one case where I turned around and it was just outright zero I mean right, my, probably the result they expected yeah they knew it was a loser and and still though it was uh, it was devastating to me as I said it was my first case is right. is this how I'm and and I remember pulling out of the parking garage I remember it vividly pulling out of the parking garage that night and thinking you know can I do this uh, and then I thought about, really the rest of the cases I had in my portfolio and not just my responsibility to those clients, honestly, but personal injury law gives you a certain perspective on life. And I thought about everything that my clients were dealing with and 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 how they had to persevere through horrible things that had happened to them. Mm-hmm. I was in a car driving home to a house that was standing. I had a job. I had a family. What was I worried about? Right. So I lost a case. Mm-hmm. Big deal. So I have to go back to the office and people have to look at me as a failure for a few minutes. Right. And Until you know you're what? given your next case. Right. And set off you go. Right. And then you <laughs> pull up your socks and you go again. Yeah. Uh, because again, of that, that idea of perspective, you know, my life is good. Yeah. This is a job. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to do the best job I can for my clients. But at the end of the day, um, I'm I'm a pretty lucky person, win or lose, and so it behooves me to keep fighting, and and that's what I did. And I think part of that, you know, just looking into that a little bit from sitting here, um, 
none of that regret clearly is because you didn't prepare well enough because you didn't do everything you could and and as we know it's a very human process that could have went the other way and uh you know i think that's something that that type of regrets probably a lot harder to deal with knowing that you didn't work on this file and and the other thing about it though is and again i i try to take every opportunity um, even in the face of failure so what did i do the next day I called the other lawyer and congratulated her on a, on a job really well done. And she told me she thought I did a, a great job. She knew it was my first case. Uh, we had lunch and uh, we have been friends since that day. She's referred me work. Uh, we've had a number of cases together. We still go out for dim sum kind of twice a year. And, and she's fantastic. I called the judge, uh, not the next day, but shortly after, and asked if, if he wouldn't mind meeting with me because I'd like to get some feedback. It was my first case. And we sat down and he said, I just want you to know I would have done differently than the jury. I, and I remember having a, a mid trial, pre trial very early on where, you know, you know, what's happened, right? Is, is the trial judge has said to a, a colleague after opening statements or after the plaintiff gets on the stand, what is Wagman doing? You got to get him in for a pre trial and tell him he's nuts. And we went into this pretrial, and the judge says, look, you know, what are you doing here? I said, they won't offer any money. What am I supposed to do here? He said, oh, well, if they won't offer you any money, I guess you better go back and do the trial. And clearly I had at least changed the trial judge's mind to some small degree. And we had a nice conversation, and he gave me some, you know, just some helpful tips about what he thought. But to me, that was very validating, and uh, I know that, uh, that judge had had let word get around to people in my firm that that he thought that I had done a, a good job, and uh, you know that that certainly helped to cushion the blow a little bit. But at the end of the day, I I did I lost the trial. That's that's on me, and I took everything that I could from it, and it made me a better advocate, uh, and I gained a friend out of it, and uh, and you move on. This um, you know, what you're describing shows a lot of dedication to your clients, to the law, to your ongoing improvement. But how do you achieve that um, harmony with your personal life? Because, you know, you can put in 80 hours a week in law and still feel like you're not doing enough. But we have lives to live, right? And how do you, uh, you know, I know, for example, you're a very avid cyclist. I know that you're a very talented musician. You're in a rock band. Uh, so how does all that get blended into this mix? Um, you know, the, I guess the best, the best description uh, that I can give you is that I try to be present wherever I am. Uh, when I'm at work, I try to work really hard, put my head down, uh, and do what I need to do. When I'm at home, uh, I try to be present. And, and again, I'm not trying to make myself into some sort of Superman. When my kids were young, I did not get home in time for them to go to bed. Mm -hmm. uh, sorry, I certainly didn't get home in time for them to have dinner. I tried to get home to, to read a book. You know, I tried to get home for 7.30, you know, 8 o'clock to, uh, to read a book. Uh, and when I was there, you know, well, it was easy at the time when my kids were very young because I'm not sure smartphones were invented yet. But, uh, you know, no phone, no distractions. That was 15 or 20 minutes where I could just be there with, you know, kind of one kid at a time uh, to read a book. And, you know, fast forward, obviously now they're, they're a little bit older. Um, I help with homework and I put my phone down and I try to be there. If that's what one of my kids wants to spend time with me doing, then that's what I'll do. 
Uh, not just blow them off, not try and get through it as quickly as possible because I got Netflix that I got to watch. Uh, don't worry, Netflix is later on in the, in the night. Uh, but I try to be there. Uh, you know, I, I coached uh, two of my kids playing basketball for, for many years. And even though it's just, you know, an hour or an hour and a half, uh, you know, on a Saturday morning, the drive to and from basketball, uh, the time there with them, you just try to be present uh, wherever it is that you are, whatever it is that you're doing. Uh, you know, try to take full advantage of that time, put your all into it, and then move on to the next thing. And, you know, just knowing you, you have a very broad perspective and empathy to your community. I know that you're very involved um, in charities. You're part of the Enbridge Ride to Conquer Cancer Hall of Fame. What does that yeah. mean? I was <laughs> reading that and I thought, the Hall of Fame? Uh, that's that's another uh, uh, personal accolade that I, I can't take much credit for, honestly. That's um, uh, that's really a fundraising award. So I've uh, if, if you raise more than $100,000 over the course of your time with the, the Ride to Conquer Cancer, uh, you get into the, to the Hall of Fame. And uh, you know, for someone who's a lawyer who knows a lot of people, uh, raising money for something that you're passionate about uh, is not that difficult. And, you know, sending out one or two group emails a year to, you know, a few hundred friends and colleagues, all of whom, by the way, have been touched by cancer, and we could do a whole other podcast on, on that. Uh, I had a very good friend of mine who just died two weeks ago after a seven-week seven week battle with cancer so that is why i ride every year because and raise money uh, because this is something that affects every single one of us uh, members of our family and our friends and you know god willing not ourselves or our immediate family but it will happen i mean that's that's the statistics would tell you it will happen so uh, I, you know i'm passionate about i'm passionate about raising money uh, but it's it's the people who who give every year who, who should be getting the award not not me i mean i get on my bike and i I, I don't tell my wife, but it's really just a glorified boys' weekend. Uh, you know, I've got a small group of friends who <laughs> well, are, who are cyclists. <laughs> yeah, exactly. A uh, small group of friends who are cyclists, and we ride Toronto to Hamilton. We stay over in Hamilton that night, and then we ride uh, from Hamilton to Niagara. But you know, you're talking about some people who are, you know, some pretty serious cyclists. And so, you know, we get to Hamilton by, you know, long before noon, and and. Uh, you know, I'm I'm lying on a massage table by should by I be 1 editing PM. this out? For yeah, no, no, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, for for people who are giving, I work really, really hard, and yeah. so you should give more to the charity. But uh, but you know what's neat about you describing that is, um, you know, as you're saying this, I'm, I'm starting to understand that you've um, learned to uh, integrate uh, your community into your general practice and sort of disposition to help people, and I think that's really impressive. So let's let's take you to court now, because you know part of what we always like to ask everyone here is is some of the tricks and tips that they've learned, and you know everyone's got their own um, you know a top ten list, but I just want to ask you what what is one thing that you've learned in advocacy that's really served you well over the years? Something that maybe is is not uh, as commonly known as what's taught in advocacy schools. I'm not sure if this is exactly what you're talking about, but I. I um play a little trick with myself. Um, you know, anyone who doesn't get some butterflies right before they're going to stand up to, you know, start a trial, do an opening statement, you know, even argue a, a significant motion, uh, you know, anyone that doesn't get that kind of uh, 
nervous rush. And it's not, it's not, you know, horrible nerves. It's a combination of adrenaline and, and mm-hmm. excitement and nerves. Um, anyone who doesn't get that, uh, I think, has lost their their real passion for 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 litigation and, and for what we do. Um, and I always uh, write one word at the top of whether it's my submissions or my opening statement or my closing statement in that case, uh, and it is the word breathe. And I remember when I was uh, first, uh, you know, in an advocate training program. You know, I like to talk. Sometimes I talk too much. Um, and, and there was nervous energy when I was first starting. And I remember the first feedback that I got, uh, from, uh, from one of the instructors was, you know, Adam, geez, you just got to learn how to breathe, like just breathe and it'll help you relax and, and it'll help you to, to organize your thoughts and it'll help your, your pace of your submissions and, you know, clearly you, you knew what you were doing and you knew what you were talking about. It wasn't about preparation. It wasn't about substance. It was just about breathe, damn it. And so I write the word breathe at the top of my opening statement. And I, uh, I know it's there, uh, but I open my, my folder or my binder. And the first thing I do is I see the word breathe and I kind of laugh to myself in my head that, that I become such a, you know, a, a, a slave to, to that, uh, that superstition almost to, to have that word there. It's, it's kind of like my, my crutch. And it just reminds me to take it slow, that I'm ready. I know I'm prepared. I know I've got this down. Uh, and to, to be confident in, in, in what I'm about to say. And then go. I think that's great because it permeates to a lot of different aspects, not just for your own organization and advocacy, but, you know, we sometimes lose sight of the fact that we, we're talking to somebody, we're trying to persuade somebody or, or a group of people. And yes, all those things may be very clear in our mind, but if we're talking a mile a minute, uh, sometimes our words don't catch up to our mind and, uh, you know, it's it's hard to digest that if you're sitting on a jury. So breathe. Look, per- persuasion is not just about what you say. It's right. about how you say it. Yeah. What about after court? Is there some place that you just have to go to? Is there a steak you need to eat or a cigar you need to smoke? Is there something that you just love doing after a big victory? Uh, I am uh, not one to get too down in defeat or too up in victory. Uh, so the first thing that I generally do is go home. Uh, my family, you know, my kids suffer through uh, a trial uh, as much as I do. Uh, they don't see me for, you know, many weeks. Uh, I don't, uh, I find it much better to work during a trial. I find it much better to work uh, in, while it's all still fresh in my head immediately. So I always uh, get one of the, uh, you know, witness rooms or, or uh, briefing rooms in, in the courthouse. And I go back there immediately after, uh, you know, we're finished sitting for the day and I work for several hours. Uh, and by the time I come home, I'm kind of hungry and I'm kind of tired. Right. But and, you're now focused, like you say earlier, yeah. now you can divert all your attention to what you want to do. Yeah. And, and again, I, I'm certainly not superhuman by any means. And so the suggestion that I... I don't know I, about that. that I, I kind of see it yeah, as peeking out there somewhere. The, the, the suggestion that I come home in the middle of a trial and then spend good quality time with my kids, it right. would be a false suggestion. Uh, and they know. I mean, they know when it happens. And as a personal injury lawyer, frankly, it doesn't happen that often. 
you know, if, if I get into, if I do a serious trial once every two years, I mean, honestly, I, that's a lot for a personal injury lawyer. Um, you know, so, so when, when it's over, um, that's what I want to do. I want to go home. I, I want to share. Uh, I want to update them. Uh, I want to remind them that here I am back in their lives. Uh, and then I want to go to work the next day and work on my next <laughs> few cases. Uh, right. Throw on the spandex and uh, exactly. off you go. Yeah. You know, the, the reality is that, you know, you learn a lot more when you lose than when you win. Um, it's, it's really hard to analyze a victory and, and come to any conclusions about what it was in particular that, that you did well, what won you that case. It's much easier to spend the time the next day after a loss going back over, you know, what would I do differently? What clearly didn't resonate with the jury? What came as a surprise to me that, that shouldn't have come as a surprise to me that I need to make sure I avoid next time? What, what is it about my briefing of my client that, that I missed that that allowed that left them open to cross examination in in a certain area. Right, because and we're rarely um, we're rarely critical of victories, are we? Aren't we? Because, exactly. Yeah, and and on the flip side of things, we dissect every little thing. Was my my robe straight? Was you know did, why did the judge look at me that way when I said this? But in a victory, it's very easy to just fall into the lull of thinking, wow, I was really good that time. Yeah, so the day after a, a loss tends to be more reflection. The day after a win tends to be more back to work. Right, right. Um, one thing that comes up a lot with younger lawyers, um, you know, is how to deal with difficult clients. And, and you know, there's lots of ways a client can be difficult. But is there a general strategy that you employ with just maybe setting expectations or Something like that to give a tip to those people dealing with difficult clients. Yeah, and I think you, you know you you started you know hitting the nail on the head is and that is expectations. Uh, one of the things that I try to be uh, is an expectation manager from day one, um, and that doesn't mean that you can always manage everyone's expectations, and that doesn't mean that people are open. Uh, to having their expectations managed or that they'll necessarily even share with you what their expectations are. But that doesn't stop me from day one uh, from managing those expectations. I think the second part of it is communication uh, because communication leads to trust. There are too many lawyers, and and I can only speak to personal injury lawyers because this is what I see, but I assume it happens in other areas of the law, uh, who spend so little time with their client that, that, you know, seeing them at an examination for discovery, maybe the first time that they've met them because some other lawyer uh, met them when they when they first came to the firm. And, and, and if not, it may be the second time that they've ever spoken to them. Uh, the mediation, in some cases, for some firms, maybe the first time they've ever met their client or, or the second time they've ever met their client the law, and the client doesn't know what's happened in the interim because there hasn't been a lot of communication. It's really, really hard to engender any sort of trust or any relationship um, and therefore really difficult for the client to have confidence in what you're doing and what you're telling them um, if, if that's the way that you've handled the case. And so, and I understand the realities. I mean, people are busy. They have busy practices. Yeah, as a junior lawyer, sometimes you get a case handed to you at the last second. But at the very least, pick up the phone. Call the client explain why you've been not 
forced to or or handed at the last second, why you've been chosen to handle that discovery or that mediation, why this is something that you're good at. Yeah, I think it's I think it's easy for people to for lawyers uh, to lose sight that uh, they may know the destination, they can see the road trip that you're on, but the client is looking out the window and thinking, "Why isn't my driver speaking to me? Where are we going? Uh, I I can't get any phone calls returned." And and sometimes, at least in our experience, the journey is far more important to the client than the actual result. And, and and ironically, the result, uh, they're going to be far more content with the result if they've been part of that journey. Yeah. And, and let me say this. I mean, there, there are some individuals who are just simply more difficult than others. And, and expectation management aside and communication aside, they are very, very difficult individuals. So I've got kind of two rules that I've come up with. Uh, the first is, and this is kind of a general rule of life that, again, annoys many people when I tell them, um, the nastier you are to me, the nicer I am to you. And I found that for many people, it's very disarming. They're looking for a fight. And when you don't give them one, they don't know how to react. And they back off. Um, They are used to, in their life, other people treating them that way. And when someone treats them with respect and with dignity and, and just being nice, it throws them off and it really changes how they act. And by the way, I have the same... Uh, mentality when it comes to dealing with difficult lawyers. It's exactly (laughs) the same. Um, You know, I have uh, some people who I consider to be friends who others would consider to be very difficult lawyers to deal with. And the bottom line is I just treated people nicely and with respect and it's very disarming. Uh, But the second thing is, and, and, you know, I, I wish this wasn't the case, but it is, I've come to the conclusion that I've only, I only have a certain amount of time and I can't help everybody. And I went through a period a few years ago where I just decided I didn't have time to deal with some of the most difficult clients in my portfolio, who, by the way, all happen to have seven-figure claims. And I asked them to go find new lawyers. And I told them why. Uh, And I told them that I think they should be nicer and more respectful to their next lawyer. Uh, I think I told them that the the way that they... uh, uh, were treating me and my staff and 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 the other lawyers who were working with me on the case was going to make it such that we were not going to be able to do the best job possible for them. It wasn't fair to them. It wasn't fair to us. Uh, and that I thought they'd be better off finding a new lawyer. And other lawyers who called me to take over the cases thought I was crazy. I mean, in 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 a couple of cases they were pretty straightforward. One was a little more complicated, but these were these were cases that all I know resolved for seven figure sums of money. And I gave up a significant amount of potential billings uh, because I just didn't think it was fair to my staff. I didn't think it was fair to me. And I didn't think it was fair to the client to be to think that they could treat people in, in a particular way. And uh, uh, so if I now meet a client in at first blush who's got a great case and and is obviously going to be someone who is going to create a problem for me and my staff, I will pass on the case and I'll pass it on to someone else. Yeah, it's good with time comes with the wisdom to recognize that erosion that's happening to you and your, your firm and the courage to say no, right? And, and I that's, think that's a hard thing to do as a young lawyer. Or, you know. One of the things that you need to distinguish though is uh, distinguish be- between someone who just is genuinely not nice and someone who is really troubled and in a great deal of need. 
And in personal injury law, especially when you're dealing with very serious cases, there's a lot of people who come in and at first blush don't seem very nice. Why? Well, they can't pay their mortgage and they can't pay for food and they don't know how they're going to live. And they're dealing with a level of stress that I've probably never dealt with. You know, we think trials are stressful, but we can still go home and feed our families. And so when when people are acting a certain way as a result of that, I, I take it upon myself as a challenge to help make their lives better. And and you do find out that most of those people tend to be really nice people, especially when, when you offer them some help. So let me ask you this, because, uh, you know, this, this uh, gets into a really important discussion about what's happening in Ontario. And, you know, I'm sure it's, it's certainly the same uh, with us. I, I was going to say, it's just, I'm sure it's the same with you, is people don't understand what it means to be part of the justice system until they're in it. So what does it mean when someone gets hurt really bad? Let's say someone's in a very bad car accident and they come to you. Uh, what happens and, and where is their future going to be going? And what are some of the obstacles they're going to face, particularly in light of some of the recent changes that's happened in Ontario over the past several years? Yeah, well, uh, Ontario, um, for, for as good of a province as this is to live in, um, and, and as lucky we are uh, to be Ontarians, we have a terrible system for um, motor vehicle law and especially for those who are most seriously injured and it's been eroded over the last number of years. Uh, people are shocked when they come into my office to hear about some of the restrictions that our government's put in, even if you're not at fault. If you're, if you're hit by a drunk driver who runs a red light and smashes into you and you can't go back to work, in the short term, and, and it's not so short because it's between the day of the accident and the day of a trial, which in many cases is years, more than five years, you can only collect 70% of your loss of income. So you're giving 30% of your money, your income, right back to the insurance company of the drunk driver that hits you. How is that? I mean, you know, people have, have you know, planned their life to, even, even if they're being diligent, uh, even if they had a 10% buffer of, of their daily expenses, that's pretty good. You're putting 10% aside. And you're saying that it, you only get 70%? You only get 70%. Why? Because uh, the, and this is my, I, I want to be clear, I've only ever been a plaintiff personal injury lawyer. I understand that my perspective is skewed as, as a result of that. Uh I think I have a pretty good perspective, especially given my years at the board of, of OATLA. Uh, the insurance lobby is very, very strong. Uh, they have done an excellent job of convincing members of the government uh, that uh, there's all these problems in the system, that it's broken, that that's why insurance is too expensive in Ontario and they have to keep limiting what people are entitled to. And so that's one of the limits that they've that they've placed on it. People are shocked uh, when they come to my office or they call me and say, I had this horrible injury. Uh, I was unable to work for two years, but thank God I was finally able to recover. You know, I had some benefits luckily while I was off, but, you know, I, I want to collect now for my pain and suffering. And I say, well, you can't do that. And they wouldn't even know that necessarily. No, because we have a system in Ontario that says you can't sue for pain and suffering unless you have a permanent and serious injury. People don't know that. It, we've, we've got, you know, I think, is it 9 million uh, uh, drivers in Ontario? 6 million insurance policies, something like that? And, um, and I would bet you 1% of people 
Less than 1% of people know that there are these serious restrictions in our law. Uh, we used to have a more generous no-fault benefit system. So regardless of how people were injured, you know, the drunk driver that smashed into you running a red light and you were still entitled to the same benefits. But if you were seriously injured, those benefits in Ontario were fairly generous. The Ontario government reduced those benefits by $1 million. $1 million. So what does that uh, mean years then ago. for someone who's hurt? Sure. So for someone who's hurt, uh, and let's you ta- asked about kind of a typical thing, what would we deal with? Uh, well, when someone is discharged from hospital, we want to make sure they've got a safe place to live. If they're in a wheelchair, that their home is accessible, uh, that there are ramps or stair lifts, uh, lifts in the, in their bedroom, uh, you know, a kitchen that's accessible, so that they can go back to functioning a a whatever the new normal life is that's pretty expensive. We want to make sure that people are cared for in their home so that there's care, um, uh, you know, who come help them get dressed in the morning or shower in the evening, things like that. And we want to make sure that they can get the medical treatment that they need, right? Whether it's, uh, you know, physiotherapy, uh, you know, occupational therapy, whether it's just medications, whether it's devices, uh, whether it's cognitive therapy, psychological therapy, all those things obviously cost money. And, you know, what the Ontario government's done is basically taken a million dollars out of that and reduced the policy from two million to one million. And one million dollars, you may say, well, that sounds like a lot of money, a million dollars. Well, after we've renovated your home for a few hundred thousand dollars, and after you've gone through intensive therapy in the first couple of years, which is generally for someone with very serious injuries, you're Mm -hmm. talking about a couple hundred thousand dollars. And it's it's not like these are things people want to spend money on, right? It's not as though they're getting some sort of, I mean, I think that's often the perception, right? And there's certainly perhaps a marketing campaign behind that, the idea that if you get hurt, you can sue for millions of dollars and get a big fat check and buy a Ferrari or something. Yeah, it's, it's just not true. It's just not accurate. And again, the insurance lobby has done a wonderful job uh, vilifying uh, uh, personal injury plaintiffs. They've done a wonderful job vilifying personal injury lawyers. Uh, you know, there's a few examples of lawyers doing bad things that obviously don't don't help the rest of us at sure. all. Right. Uh, but as there is in any area of law. Absolutely. You know, the vast majority of people who do what I do are passionate compassionate human beings who really, really care and just want to help. And yes, we all need to make a living. Absolutely. And I make no apologies for that. Uh, but people really are out there to help. And and again, the, the insurance lobby's done a wonderful job. One of the best examples of that very public example is the McDonald's coffee case, which at the time when it was reported, you know, woman spills coffee on herself, gets millions of dollars. Uh, the insurance industry loved this, right? And they publicized this and, and they used it to try to generate, uh, you know, tort reform in the U.S. And we've seen this come up here at Canada. I mean, the reality of that case is it was a great case against McDonald's. McDonald's was negligent. Right. Uh, McDonald's- in the U.S. too. Yeah. But you still hear these ideas percolating up here and thinking that somehow there's application. And even people, I'm sure, come to you and say, what about the McDonald's guy? And and they do. And it's, it's actually even worse up here. And part of that is because one of the things that makes us Canadian is that we're not American. So if we as Canadians have this perception that uh, Americans have gone litigation crazy, that they just sue everybody over everything, 
we say to ourselves as good Canadians, as good Ontarians, as good Torontonians, we're not going to do that. We're tough. We got the hockey mentality. Someone knocks me down, I stand up, I brush myself off, I go to work. And so why isn't that person doing that? Oh, they're just suing. That's like an American thing. They shouldn't do that. And so there's really a, a backlash uh, here in Ontario. And we're seeing it, by the way, in, in jury awards uh, across the province. The, the lobbying effort and the publicity has been, uh, you know, it's, it's not been good for plaintiffs. And so we really need to change the story. And that's one of the things that, that certainly we tried to do and we continue to try and do at Otla is to, uh, to let people know that there's another side of the story, you know, that there's, uh, that the vast majority of what we do is just help average Ontarians who, who really need the help, number one. And number two, that, you know, a lot of the bad acting that's going on out there is on the part of, uh, uh, you know, insurance companies who are unreasonably denying claims and making, you know, people's lives more difficult than they have to. And uh, unfortunately, that's been done uh, with a lot of help from the Ontario government. Uh, I'm going to keep trying to talk to them about it, and I'm going to keep trying to uh, uh, encourage a change in a positive direction and it uh, feels like I'm banging my head against the wall a fair amount, but I got a tough skull, so I'm going to keep at it. Right. Well, just keep persisting. It sounds like, um, you know, like many things before, you'll you'll eventually succeed in some respect. I, I really hope you do. But, uh, you know, you touched upon this and, and uh, I think we have to address it. And that is, there has been some controversy as of late with advertising and certainly a spin on the personal injury lawyer and this characterization that, you know, all the personal injury lawyers are uh, ambulance chasers and just out to enrich themselves. What would you say to that? Yeah. Well, what I'd say to it, I probably can't uh, say on on record for you know young lawyers to listen to. There'd be a lot of bleeps. Uh, (laughs) But it's garbage. Uh, It's it's absolute garbage. Again, there's there's uh, I think 1,200 lawyer members of of the Ontario Trial Lawyers Association, almost all of whom do exclusively or mostly personal injury law. Um, I've met not all of them certainly, but hundreds of them, Uh, and we're talking about a group of some of the hardest working, uh, smart, passionate people that I have had the pleasure of, of knowing. Um, the vast majority simply want to help uh, and, and make a living and support their families. And, and again, that's, that's, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, but they really do want to help. They put, their, uh, they put their money on the line. One of the things that people don't appreciate about a personal injury practice is um, we fund every dollar of every case. The average case in my office has $30,000, dollars $40,000 in disbursements. Wow. Disbursements that we are funding on every case. If we lose, we never get that money back. For years, we work on these cases and don't get paid a nickel, not a penny. And if we lose, we'll never get paid a penny. Uh, and we only get paid at the end of the case. And what, what, people also don't realize um, with law firms is there's very strict rules on how you can go about financing these absolutely things. absolutely it's 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 really it's it's our personal money and by the way I'm not saying any of this so that anyone feels sorry for me or other personal injury lawyers doing it not at all absolutely no, no, not of course but that's the reality of our business so that when someone says at the end of the day well you know how can you charge uh, a client you know some percentage of their settlement the answer is uh, 
because this is what we do for a living. We, we couldn't help people otherwise. Uh, no one could afford, uh, who, who's just been in a horrible accident and uh, you know can't work and can't pay their mortgage and can't pay their rent to come to me and, and hand me a check for $25,000 for disbursements, let alone pay our legal fees along the way. So you know, we're talking about people who invest their own money. Right. Uh, and, and, and two, these aren't disbursements that you think, hey, let's just go out and spend a bunch of money because of the manner in which litigation proceeds in the province, these are necessary to succeed, um, and there's really no choice. Absolutely. And so so the answer to your question is, you know, the vast majority of personal injury lawyers out there uh, do it for the right reason, uh, do it pretty well, and, uh, and really are out there helping people. Uh, I also have to say that, you know, I don't have a problem with people advertising. Okay. Advertising is is permitted. There are rules around it, and as long as people do it properly, I have absolutely no issue. You know, I, I support the idea that uh, of access to justice and and people in the community being able to find a lawyer if they don't otherwise know how to find a lawyer. Um, what I take issue with is dishonesty. What I take issue with is advertising that is misleading. What I take issue with is advertising that kind of brings our, our profession in, into disrepute. And those aren't just words because I, uh, in doing my research, I've, I realized that you as OLA president uh, were one of the many people involved in bringing forward a OLA code of conduct. Yeah, and that's that's certainly a very proud thing that, that our our board did over that time. And, and just to be clear, I mean, I the legwork was done by by many people who came before me, some of the presidents before me, whether it was, uh, you know, Maya Bent or, or Steve Rastin, uh, Paul Hart, uh, you know, one of our upcoming presidents, Ron Bohm, was very involved in that. Uh, you know, Alan Weinperl, our current president, Claire Wilkinson. I mean, and, and more and more, I'm leaving out many names. But, you know, these are people who are instrumental in doing meetings across the province uh, to create what really is a wonderful document. I was lucky enough under my years uh, as president to just be the one disseminating it, uh, you know, to to the public, to to the profession. And really what it is is kind of the rules of professional conduct for uh, personal injury lawyers. You know, a lot of it relates back to the rules of professional conduct, but the rules of professional conduct, you know, from the law society are very general in nature in, in many respects. And, um, you know, how does that apply to me as a personal injury lawyer? And it's, it's, it's such a wonderful document. It's, it's, so you this know, is like an overlay of the professional rules of conduct designed specifically for personal injury lawyers. Exactly. And, and, and what are the consequences? I mean, this is, uh, it seems to me, contingent upon your membership. If you're going to be a member of OLA, you better ascribe to these or... Yeah. And, and so when you say or, uh, you know, we are not a regulatory body. We, we can't take away someone's license. And in the worst case, we could take away someone's membership in OLA. Uh, you know, we've had a few instances where people have made complaints under the code and we've got a, a, a system in place for dealing with those, for reviewing it, for talking to people. Some of the times lawyers have said, I didn't realize that I had done something inappropriate, advertised inappropriately, marketed inappropriately, uh, take over a file from from another lawyer inappropriately. But I know. think it also speaks to what you're saying is, is these members are good people who want to do well. And if there is this corrective measure, again, you don't have regulatory power, but even pointing it out and saying, hey, maybe you need a bit of mentorship. Maybe you have you thought of this? And it seems as though most of them are willing to change and listen to you. One of the things that we discussed as a board that was really important is that the goal of uh, the OTLA code uh, and the enforcement mechanism was not to eliminate members. It was to uh, change behavior. It was, as you said, to, to mentor, to inform, and and I think the the code is is has been a great tool in that respect. Well, really congratulations about that. I think that's a wonderful initiative, and I I think 
I hope that many other organizations start to consider these things because it sounds like it definitely has an effect. Um, you know, your your um, list of accomplishments is long, particular as it relates to settlements. I was reading one in particular, $3.45 million. But, you know, you don't strike me as someone where that stuff matters so much. And so when I ask you, what is a case to you, you know, and obviously there's privacy issues and things like that, but is there, is there a case that really stands out to you that you can talk about that was particularly meaningful to you? Um, yeah, I, you know, this case sticks out just because it happens to be the mo- most recent one in, in my mind. Uh, it was a, a trial and then an appeal uh, for a, uh, a pediatrician. Um, who had been injured uh, walking down the road, and she was hit by a, a sign. Mm-hmm. Um, and like a construction sign. It was or? actually it was a, a sign put out by a Condo Corp. Uh, you know, on the weekends, condo uh, uh, condominium companies will put out A-frame signs on the sidewalks, telling you where their sales centers are. Right. Yeah. And you know, on depending on where they're building a building, um, you know, the the sidewalks can be littered with these signs and. Uh, they're being put out on on public property where pedestrians are walking, and there's not a lot of regulation. There, there was at the time when this was happening. I think there was there was essentially no regulation. There's been now some regulation since then, uh, and you know, when you're talking about a pediatrician, uh, you know, whose only goal in life is to, to help, help children. Kids, yeah. And she's walking down the street, and and on a very windy day, on a on a day where the forecast was for very strong winds in downtown Toronto, between big buildings where we know that the wind really kind of funnels in between, and and the wind picks up the sign and smashes in her uh, smashes her in the face, and she ends up uh, with some fairly significant injuries, uh, and only being able to work uh, very limited hours. Uh, the case went on for a very long time. And you see, when I hear that, though, I think, and I think most people in the province would think, well, this is clear. I mean, she, uh, you know, has a, a wonderful, almost by definition, there is no better job, right? I mean, here you are, well-educated, helping children. The fault of it is clear. It was also foreseeable. Isn't that something where just a check is cashed and, and we move on? And it's interesting because that was kind of the idea that we had as the case was going on. At some point in time, uh, someone will come to their senses and realize that uh, that they just shouldn't have put the sign out that day. Uh, they, they just shouldn't have done it, or, or they should have weighted it down in some fashion. And the answer was always, well, that's not what we do. We've put out thousands of signs, hundreds of thousands of signs, and no one's ever been hit in the face by a blowing sign, and therefore we're not responsible. Uh, and it just, I look, I've thought that I've been right and I've been wrong many times before. And so, you know, that certainly could have happened in this case. Uh, but, you know, we, we did a trial that was, I thought, a very well-run trial, forgetting about the result. It was just, it was a very efficiently run trial uh, with, uh, you know, some senior defense lawyers. And just so uh, we're clear, you did succeed and get some awards for that. Yeah, person. we did. The, the, the judgment uh, following the appeal uh, with interest and, and cost, the judgment was in excess of $4 million. Oh, my goodness. And, um, you know, it was it was a long time in coming. And, and I can tell you that uh, meeting with the client, uh, which I did just a couple of weeks ago, um, to finalize the paperwork and, and hand her a check and, and know that 
after years of foregoing significant income and and the suffering that she went through and and the suffering that the the litigation process put her through. I mean, our litigation process is not kind to accident victims, frankly. Um, You know, to be able to bring that to an end was a real relief and uh, and I felt real good about it. So wrapping up, I I have a couple final questions for you. One is, you know, if you were the attorney general or if you were Supreme Court justice who were, you were able to either reverse a really important case or change uh, an aspect of our law, what is the first thing that you would do if you had the power? I mean, without getting into the, the nitty gritty of, of auto insurance law and some of the specific uh, changes I would make, one thing that has always bothered me uh, is uh, the the cap on, on general damages for pain and suffering, back to the trilogy in 1978, I think, from the Supreme Court. So that's the, um, the Andrews, uh, you know, Arnold um, uh, case. I, I forget the third. Uh, that, in 1978, set a cap on damages for pain and suffering of $100,000. And it's been inflated up to today. But to, to see someone uh, who is a quadriplegic um, young person whose entire life has just been, well, destroyed is a strong word because I want to think that people will still have a life and they can still succeed, absolutely. And there's some people who've done wonderful things after horrible injuries, but but whose lives have been just irrevocably changed. Uh, and to tell them that, um, you know, the most that they can get for pain and suffering is, is a few hundred thousand dollars, um, is, is very difficult when you layer on that because what happened after the trilogy is that our courts and our court of appeal has decided that caps are okay. And so to tell uh, a, a parent that the death of their child is only worth $100,000 in, I think it was $1996, so it's inflated a little bit up to today, uh, because that's what a case said. Or that a sibling's case is only worth, for a death, a fatality, is only worth $25,000, again, inflated then up to today, uh, because that's what our court said. Despite the fact that juries have come back, many juries time and time again have come back and given higher awards, even after they get told by the judge what the cap is. Our, our, the whole point of a jury system is to bring our societal values uh, to these cases. And juries are telling us, guys, you're wrong. That, that's not putting these caps on, on these amounts is just wrong. And, and they're not, um, they don't make sense in, in today's world. And well, it's so shocking if, to even hear that, you know, when you, you describe it. I mean, even as a lawyer, who's been doing this for quite some time. I, I, I don't know that. And I don't think many Canadians do, hardly any. And, and that's, by the way, that's, that's a Supreme Court decision. So right. these, these, so are, these are caps that, that, uh, that apply to our entire country. Uh, so if I could do something, um, I would go back and I would, I would take away the caps because to tell people that, that that's what their lives are worth or the lives of their loved ones who have been killed, um, again, at the hands of a, a, a drunk driver, someone who, uh, you know, fell asleep at the wheel. I mean, it's it's 
it's very difficult to do and it's just not right. I mean, it's not, you know, I understand and don't agree with some of the policy decisions around some of the tinkering that the Ontario government's done in our, you know, specific line by line auto insurance law, but I cannot understand a policy that says that juries and judges don't get to decide what what someone's injuries or lives are, are really worth. Particularly when the public is clearly saying it's worth something else. Correct. Okay. So we already know that if you win the lottery, you're still in work the ne- at work the next day now. So well, I might let- I might cycle the next day and go back to work the day after. Okay. And you still you still will then uh, all this money will be meaningless to you. So what do you if if I was to give you that money and say, okay, Adam, I want you to run an ad, uh, Toronto Maple Leafs versus Toronto uh, for the Montreal Canadiens, <laughs> Stanley Cup final about something that every Canadian needs to know about personal injury law or to protect themselves and their family, what is the pith of that ad going to say? Well, you know, I am as concerned about keeping people safe as I am helping them when they're not. Uh, I think the scourge on our society right now is distracted driving. Um, I think that, uh, you know, all you have to do is, you know, I drive home going up University, you know, Avenue Road every day and you stop at a light and you look to your right and you look to your left and to say 90% of the time people are on their, are, are texting on their phone is probably an underestimate. Okay. Everyone is driving around, uh, looking down and not looking around. And, you know, when you hear on the radio and you hear it all the time, uh, about pedestrians being hit at intersections, not the jaywalking at, at, at midnight, but at intersections. And you hear about cyclists being doored all the time. And you hear about cyclists being, you know, cut off by cars. And, and don't get me wrong, pedestrians do stupid things. Cyclists do stupid things. I'm both and I've done stupid things. But I, I, I'm handling a, a case for a, a family of, of a woman who was killed crossing in a crosswalk. Uh, at an intersection. It happened to be a day where finally the police actually sent a notice out to the public saying, can people stop hitting pedestrians today? We've had four people who have been killed at intersections. Uh, And if we don't do something about that, more people are going to die. We've got to make uh, distracted driving the same as we've made impaired driving. It is not cool to drive drunk anymore. Uh, you know, when, when I was growing up, you know, in the, in the eighties and even in the nineties, I mean, that this was a regular thing. People just got drunk and they drove home and you just don't do that anymore. Now that's, that's a, that's a, uh, uh, public announcements, uh, you know, the, the whole idea of it has changed. People have died. You know, Matt has done a wonderful job. Uh, Uber taxis, you know, those have been a great advancement in, in trying to keep people safe. Uh, we've got to do the same thing with, with distracted driving. So if I could spend some money out there at a time when I thought people were looking at it, um, I would shame them. Well, uh, uh, coming from you as someone who sees the, catastrophes that can happen to people on a day-to-day um, from these sorts of things. I think that means a lot, and I hope a lot of people hear it. And put down your phones, everybody. My goodness. Please. Thank you so much for um, being part of this, Adam. It was a real pleasure, as always. Good to see you. My pleasure, Sean.